Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. Now we'll be transitioning into the reading and preaching of God's word for us. And to do that, I'd like to invite Brian to come on up. Brian? Thank you very much, Stephen. Um, it is good to see everyone here. Actually, in the first service, I forgot that I had to be up here and I stood there. It was very awkward. Um, it's so good to see you here. And I, I need to ask you all a question. Has there been a moment in your life where you felt different, very different from the rest of those around you? When I first came to this country, I lived in Hong Kong all my life, and I came to Canada 2018 as a fresh 18-year-old trying to start a new life here. And as I came here, I lived with a bunch of people um, that didn't look like me, that were quite different, predominantly um, those who were outside of Ontario, uh, just around, sorry, they were in Ontario, but from smaller towns, so they're predominantly Caucasian, predominantly white. And if you know anything, Mid-Autumn Festival, if you know what that is, that's actually in a couple of days from now. Mid-Autumn Festival is something that those who are predominantly from Chinese backgrounds practice. It's a time they would come together with their families, and you would eat something called mooncake. If you know what that is, mooncake. Mooncake, it's round like the moon. It's made of lotus seed paste with the egg yolk right in the middle. Sometimes there's double egg. That's, that's my jam. And it's brown. It's like a dark brown color. So just take a moment. If you grew up in small towns in Ontario, and before you was a mooncake, you see that little yolk. I mean, okay. That's a little different. And so that's what I did. I thought to myself, why don't I share my culture with these people? I'm, I'm from Hong Kong, you know, that'd be so exciting. So I cut up the little mooncake, put it on a plate, and I'm like, hey, try this, you know what? You know, experience my culture. And out of the 10 that I shared this mooncake with, maybe one person tried it. The rest of them, the rest of the nine, looked at it and were like, oh, what's that made of? I was hurt. They weren't trying to hurt me, but I felt my difference very clearly. I felt my culture rejected. That wasn't their goal, but that's how I felt. So I, take that, I took that plate of mooncake and I slid it into the trash. As social beings, isn't it interesting that we never want to feel different? None of us that one of the scariest things that we can experience is this sense of being a foreigner, being an outsider. The Bible speaks directly about the topic of culture, actually very clearly. In the passage that we're going to see from Revelations 7, 9 to, 10, 9 to 10 describes this. And as we read these verses, um, I was meant to read the verses at the beginning and I forgot to do that, so I'll make sure I do that. As we read these verses, just for some context, the book of Revelation is what we call apocalyptic literature. And what that means is there are grand images of, of you know, angels and, and trumpets and all these things, and, and apoc apocalyptic literature was, it was wild. The whole idea of it was it's describing the end of the world, the end of existence. And so what we see John doing is actually he's describing what the church will look like at the very end. That's what John is doing in this passage. And so I'm going to read it for us quickly. 
and I'll describe to us what the bottom line is of what we're doing today. So if you have your Bibles open, flip to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 to 10. If you have your apps, you can flip there or thumb through there, and I'll read this for us. Revelation 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out loud a voice, a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the bottom line of what we're going to look at today. One, we can find hope in gospel diversity. Two, we can find hope in gospel unity because it points us to what Christ has done and it points us to what Christ will do. So, gospel diversity, gospel unity. Our first point, gospel diversity. In the first verse that we've looked at, uh, verse nine, it tells us what the church is meant to be. And what it's meant to be is diverse. So I'm gonna read it again, verse nine. Visualize, like close your eyes if this helps you. Imagine before you these words. Try to picture them. Try to let your creativity fill your mind. And remember, this is the description of the church, right? Not just Grace Toronto, but the whole church of all generations over time. Revelations 7 verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. No one could count. No number could count. A great multitude. What's being described here is an infinite amount of people. Just imagine before you in your peripheral vision a complete covering of people from your left to your Top, top to down, it's, it's a full image of people, of diverse people. And so the writer starts with the quantity, unlimited, infinite. Then he goes into the quality. What's the quality of this people? Every nation, every tribe, every people, every tongue. This is what the church will look like at the very end at the very end of existence of humanity, this is what the church will look like. If you were a Christian sitting here, you are a part of this. This is what you look like at the very end of all of this. Before I continue, um, I think we know the word diversity is what we hear a lot right now, maybe in our workplaces, in our schools, in politics. So what's, what's the difference between this kind of gospel diversity and diversity we see in this culture. I think it's this. When we have these corporate mandates and these HR policies, I think it becomes a game of optics. It's an appearance of diversity that's very marketable to our current culture. When I first started my career in advertising many years ago, um, something always caught my attention. Whenever you're looking for talent for, for TV shows, or sorry, TV ads, um, uh, print publications of photography, you had to look for the talent. And so you have producers and creative teams writing up what they're looking for, presenting it to the client, and then they would hunt down this talent. And you have like folders. You'd have images of all this talent. 
when I was doing that, I noticed that the, the most popular thing, the most like thrilling thing for all these creative teams and, and clients was mixed couples. Mixed families, like that was the hot thing. This is diversity. But I was a little, <sighs> there's, there's something about it. When I watched our clients going through pictures of babies, mixed race babies, going, going, picking and choosing what baby looked the most mixed. That was their criteria. You know, I don't think you need to be a Christian to kind of see through this. It's, it's like as if we're seeing that these things, this, this image of diversity is so strategically constructed. It's so calculated by communication professionals. I'm happy that we're talking about diversity, but something just, it's, it's a little strange. And so how does this make this culture's, this, this culture's diversity any different from gospel diversity? This is what I think makes it different is that diversity, gospel diversity is a byproduct. It's a byproduct of the gospel. Diversity is a byproduct of the gospel. How do we see this? Jesus, the entire premise of the gospel is this, Jesus dies for people, and then what does he do? He resurrects miraculously, and he comes alive, and he's teaching his followers, he's speaking directly to them. What's his last words to his followers? What's the last thing he commands them? It's these words. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Did you hear that? All nations. This is the beginning of the Christian church. This is what Jesus is commanding his followers to do. He is sending his followers out to the world because the premise of the gospel, we all need Christ. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish, Asian, black, white. It doesn't matter if you're rich. It doesn't matter if you're poor, male, female. No matter what age, we need Christ. We need Christ. And only in Christ can we find salvation. See, this is where I think we see the truest form of inclusion. And not just a surface inclusion, but this is a spiritual inclusion of all people, of all kinds of people. And so, let's take a moment just to do our little chart of comparison. Our culture's diversity and gospel diversity Gospel diversity is what I think to be much more thorough. You see, in our culture's diversity, it tends to group people up, Asian, black, white. You're trying to get a good balance of numbers. But in the gospel diversity, how does it describe it? It's like a funnel, right? Nations, tribes, peoples, tongues. It includes all of that, even dialects. It considers the dialects. It considers the differences of this whole spectrum Gospel diversity, it's not some trendy social movement, right? It's been, what, the past 20 or 30 years that this diversity thing's been so hot in our kind of workplaces and in schools. This, these words were written 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago. This is what the church has been practicing and trying to practice. This is not some trend. And third, the gospel diversity that we see here is, it's not for the pleasure of mainstream culture. It's not for the pleasure of masses. Rather, the diversity that we see is for God's pleasure. See, we are made in God's image. And every one of us, our different skin colors, our different cultures, even our languages, 
This is God's imprint on us. And in the creation story, it describes humans as being made in the image of God. See, it's God's pleasure why the church is diverse. It's not simply just the voice of the masses. We need to ask ourselves then, how does this give anyone hope? Okay, great, the church is diverse. So what? To help us understand why exactly this gives hope, we need to consider who the author is and who the original audience is. Who is he writing to? Whenever you read the Bible, you kind of want to start from this point to kind of get an idea of what exactly is being written. And this is what's going on. John was one of the closest disciples of Jesus, right? And his 12 followers. He was the closest. He's like the beloved disciple. And at this stage of his life, he's an old man. He's writing this to the church. He wrote this in about 95 AD is what most historians believe. And he dies in 100 AD. He's an old man. Now what makes that different than him and all the other followers, the other 11 followers? Or It's this. He's the only one that dies of old age. Every other one of them martyred, murdered for their faith, burned, mutilated, tortured on the cross for their faith. This is a big deal, isn't it? He's the last leader. He's our idea of hope. But if you're the original church, what is your current context? Well, your last leader is literally an old man about to die. Okay, great. Secondly, the government hates you. They actually don't even hate, more than just hating you, they're persecuting you. Christians were dragged onto the street, mutilated for entertainment in this kind of domation reign of the Roman Empire. It, it was bloody. There are writings about it of pregnant women being tortured and hurt. It was rough. And, and so, okay, what else is there was internal racial tension. Much of the New Testament Bible is actually about this, this tension between Jews and non-Jews. And, and the word is Gentiles. Gentiles, this, is, this means anybody else that's not Jewish. So you have this tension and you have leaders. It's written in the New Testament. Leaders actually rebuking people, rebuking other leaders in their face. So this was a big deal. This was not some small tension. This is literally something that could, the church could break apart from. So with all this going on, what's God's message through John that he tells them? He tells them this. He shows them what they are at the very end. Right? Revelation is about the very end. He shows them this. He shows them they are an infinite number, a countless number of them. They may feel tiny and small now, but they will be a countless number. He's telling them that all of them will make it. Jew, Gentile, every single one of them will make it. This big tension point within the Bible is dealt with. They will be victorious. They will make it to the end, all of them. You see, gospel diversity is God showing them that he will sustain his church, that he will build his church, that he is with them to the very end. We need to hear these words as well, don't we? What are we hearing in the media? Not too long ago, we see church leaders, right? Christian leaders falling apart, failing and breaking our expectations, moral failures, causing entire communities to implode. We're in a society where 
I think we're seeing it become more hostile to Christianity in some ways, to at least Christian thinking and Christian ethics. We're seeing that racial tension too, aren't we? On a societal level, even in the churches, that's causing division within churches of what you support, what you don't support. If that's us, let's take a moment now to do something. It's a little cheesy, but I want you all, where you are sitting, just take a glance. Look to your left, look to your right. I know this sounds so cheesy, but I want you to look at the people next to you. What do they look like? What do they look like? If you want to talk about gospel diversity, I think we have an example of that right now. Our church is literally a glimpse of what God's church is meant to be. See that? Do you see how, do you see how we are a glimpse of that? And, and here's the thing. If you are a Christian in this room, the context is this. You're not a spectator. This is not something we just simply watch and sit idly by. You are a Christian. You are a part of this. What John is describing, you are in this. You are a part of this. You are a part of the progress of becoming what the church is meant to be. Now I'm going to do something that's quite specific, so you're going to have to try to follow with me. And I want to talk about grace, just very specifically from what, and I'm going to kind of go in on a specific cultural group within our church uh, that actually makes up a good volume of our church. So I know this is very specific, so please, please try to uh, follow with me. Before COVID, our church did a census. You might have filled out that census. And I've got the results, so sometimes I like to go through it. And one of the questions was, uh, what ethnicity are you? This is the interesting thing, right? This was two years ago, so things may have changed, but I think it might be still consistent. 50% of our church identify, this is the largest group, 50% of our church identify as Asian, East Asian, South Asian. 30%, this is the second group, 30% identify themselves as Caucasian, including Eastern and Western Europe. 30%, 50%, 30%, and 20% identify themselves as other ethnicities, which include, and this is a bigger group, Caribbean, Central South American, Black, African. The demographic breakdown of Grace Toronto has shifted tremendously in the past three to four years. I I asked Dan about that. If you've been here at Grace for, for longer than a couple years, you may have seen that as well. So how did we get here? How is it that 50% of our church is Asian? There's a book called The Next Evangelicalism by a Korean-American author named Sung Chan Ra, and this is what he theorizes, and I, I think he's right. In the past 50 to 6 years, 50 to 60 years, there has been an influx of immigrants into Canada, into the United States, from Korea, from Hong Kong, from India, from Pakistan, from Vietnam, And what happens is all those who come here, my English is a barrier. They can't speak the language. So churches began to form. Churches to cater to these cultures and their specific language. And so then these churches became cultural hubs. They could practice their language. They could practice their culture. And many of these these who came here would actually come to faith. Many of these immigrant families would find Christ. And that's a beautiful thing. There's a beautiful place for that. Well, these immigrants had children. The children grew up. 
And, well, English was no longer a barrier. The culture was no longer a barrier. They actually grew up understanding Canadian culture. But they want to find an expression of their own faith, right? This is not mom and dad's church anymore that they want to do. They want their own church. And guess what? They're filling the pews. They're filling the church. They're filling churches around the city. I've talked to other pastors around Toronto, and they're telling me there is a huge influx of, of second-gen Asians, second-generation Asians. They're filling their church. They're making up the majority of their church. And that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing that through the fruit of these immigrant churches, that this is what the church is starting to look like. There's something also unique about the second-gen Asians. And it's not just second-gen Asians. If you come from a second-gen background as well, you're going to know this. There's something called double consciousness. What that means is you always feel a sense of being different. You're Canadian, but you always feel there's something about it where I'm not exactly who people expect to be Canadian. Often, the second-gen is also uncomfortable. They're uncomfortable with the majority culture. They feel their difference. They feel still like a foreigner, even though they are completely Canadian. If the census is anything representative of what Grace Toronto is, and if there's a shift where those who are uncomfortable being a part of the majority are now the majority themselves, how does that influence our church? How does it influence how we practice our faith and our expression of worship If you grew up second-gen, specifically Asian, if you grew up in second-gen, and you're so used to these communities, these churches that are your cultural hubs, I've talked to many new people here, and I ask, oh, how do you hear about the church? That's usually my first question. And they say, well, um, I know someone who, you know, from this Chinese church I went to, from this Korean church I went to, um, and that's why I'm here. And if that's the case, if we're coming and we already have a network, could that be causing us to simply stay within our network? stay within these insular bubbles, and we just assume that everybody else who comes here has their own network, and we're that much less likely to actually approach others, to break out of our bubble, to actually want to include and engage others. Could it be, and this was my wife's case, I learned from her that she went to a high school that was 90 plus percent Asian, like her. 90 plus percent Asian. I came to Canada, and I'm like, what? That's a thing? Like, that's what Canada looks like, and some of you may have grown up in that, where you grew up in these kind of homogenous bubbles, where maybe you weren't exposed to people of other cultures, other races. Could that unfamiliarity cause you to be that much less likely to approach someone who doesn't look like you, that isn't someone that's, you know, something you're familiar with? This is not just second Asians, again, this is not just second gen Asians, this is all of us. How do we practice our faith? Of who our culture is, what are our cultural exports of how that influences the church? And so, considering all these things, what does seeking gospel diversity look like? I think it means this, being aware of our culture, being aware of how your expression of the Christian faith is going to be different than others in considering, you know, am I actually being accepting of others? To the 50% of our church, that's possibly second-gen Asians. Will you reject comfort 
of familiarity. Will you intentionally look for those who don't look like you? Seek them, build relationship with them week after week. To those of you who are not second gen, and I know again, that's the rest of our 50% of our church, we need to hear from you. We need to hear from you. What are our blind spots at this church? If there are blind spots, the whole idea of that term is we can't see them. And we're going to have blind spots, and we're going to continue to have blind spots because we're not perfect. But we need to hear from you. And it's also a consideration of what your blind spots are, too. We all have our cultural exports. And newcomers, I know there's a high volume of newcomers here. Please be patient with us. We're working through this. And you're going to come here and you're going to see gaps in our church. You're going to see things that could be improved. It might cause you to think, maybe I should get out of here before it's too late. But could it be that you seeing these gaps, is God actually calling you to fill them? We need to seek gospel diversity now because that's what the church will be and that's what the church is meant to be. And and we, we can find hope that we will get better at this, that we have to keep improving, that we will make it to the end. So our first point, finding hope in gospel diversity and what we're meant to be, what we will be. Our second point, hope in gospel unity. Hope in gospel unity. Revelation 7.10 that we're going to look at, it shows us, right, we soaked at what the church is meant to be. Now it tells us what the church is meant to do. Gospel diversity. They stand as one. The church stands as one. The church speaks as one. Together, there is gospel diversity. So if you have your Bibles open, take a look at that verse right now. Revelation 7, I'm going to start between where we last left off in verse 9. As I read these words, I'm going to challenge you. Try to find exactly what unifies these people. Try to find what is the focal point of what brings them together. See if you can find it. So I'm going to read it for us. Revelation 7, 9 to 10. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, though the church is made up of many, what are they doing? They stand before the throne of God and the Lamb as one. As one, they wear white robes with palm branches in their hand as one. As one, they say with a loud voice. You see that language? It's a singular voice in multiple languages, right? Every nation, people, tribes, tongues in one voice. Can you imagine hearing this? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The church is meant to be the verse, but the church is also meant to be deeply connected as one. This is gospel diversity. And so coming back to that image of just people filling your peripheral vision from left to right, from bottom, top to bottom, and you just zoom in, right, like a camera. You zoom in just a little closer, and what do you see? You literally see people of, of different generations and ages, of different colors and races and cultures and different even languages, all united, wearing white robes, palm branches in their hand, this imagery of, of victory we see from Easter, and they say in one loud voice, all together in their language, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
So if you caught that, what connects them, what unites them is who they worship. It's who they worship. And that's what we see in that quotation right there. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What does that mean? The first description of, of the God on the throne. Okay, we may we kind of be able to get that. It's kind of maybe God the Father. It's, it's God. But who is this Lamb? Who is this Lamb? And you'll notice it's a capital L, Lamb, as well. The author, John, who wrote Revelation, the words we're reading right now, also wrote the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel is an eyewitness account of Jesus and his ministry, his life and death. And this is what the writer says of Jesus. Listen to these words. John 1.29, the very first chapter, establishing the story, the setting, he says this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Does that sound familiar? The Lamb of God is Jesus. This is the lamb that we're seeing right here. This is the lamb that the church stands before God and the lamb. And so let's get a little more context. What exactly is this lamb doing? What is Christ doing? A couple verses from where you're looking if you have your Bibles open. Just a couple verses down at 14. Take a look at that. Revelation 7, verse 14. John is asked a rhetorical question. And the rhetorical question is, who are these? Who are these that are wearing white robes? It's this. This is the answer. This is the answer to him. That they, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is the whole picture of being painted of the Lamb. It's this. For the original readers, they were familiar of the concept of a lamb, and, and the idea behind it is it was an ultimate, it was, it was a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice. And this process of animal sacrifice would mean that if, if I have sin and I want to approach a holy God, a perfect God, I can't bring my sin to him. And so what they would do is they get an animal, often a lamb, and what they would do is, uh, through a priest, this lamb would then be like a substitute. Their sin is placed on this lamb, and the priest would take the lamb, cut its throat, let its blood run out of it. This is gory stuff. We don't read this and think it's gory. It's incredibly gory. And what's happening is that the lamb is taking the punishment, the sin, the punishment of death that the sinner has to come before a holy God. Do you see that connection? Do you see how this description of the washing of the blood becomes clear in the cross, in the death of Christ. It's showing us that Christ is the ultimate sacrificial lamb. That in Christ, his blood washes us clean from what? Our sin, our imperfection, the punishment we deserve, suffering, guilt, shame, our trauma, our hurts. It washes that away so we are as white as snow. This is what unites those of all nations, all tribes, all peoples, or tongues. It's the blood of Christ. It's the blood of Christ that we see God's love for us, sacrificing himself as a substitute for our sin. It's the blood of Christ that brings salvation, that saves people of all nations, all tribes, all peoples, all tongues. It's the blood of Christ that unites the church of many 
by the blood of one. This is what Christ has done for us. A couple of years ago, I was flying to the States. I had to do a transfer flight in Chicago. And you know you had to do the awkward dance of taking off your belt, taking off your shoes, to go through the conveyor belt of the screening. As I was doing this, there was this lady who was giving instructions, you know, in a monotonous tone. They say this like a thousand times every day. And, uh, you know, she said something. She said, Merry Christmas, kind of under her breath. And I heard her say this, and this is some African-American black lady kind of in her mid-50s. She says this, and, you know, I heard her, and I look her right in the eyes as best as I could. And in the most sincere way I, I try, I say to her, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. She pauses. Between the little gap of her glasses, she looks at me. And she says, I think this one's a brother. I think this one's a brother. And I got excited. I'm like, yeah, God bless you. And it's funny how in this little brief moment, I felt such a sense of warmth, such a sense of like familial connection that I'm convinced can only happen in the gospel, a deep spiritual connection. See, I think this only can happen in Christ where someone's so different, right? Some middle-aged lady from Chicago, some black lady from Chicago can connect with some 20-some kid from Hong Kong. That can only happen in Christ. And, you know, if you are considering Christianity, exploring, even skeptical, have, have you ever had, like, a brief encounter like this that could create such a bond between you and someone so different from you? I, I don't know. I think it's only in the gospel that we see this. So we looked at what Christ has done. What will Christ do? Why can we find hope in that? It's this. I'm convinced. I'm going to see her one day. I'm convinced that I'm going to see her at the end of, very, of every, all this stuff that I'm going to get to meet this lady. I have no idea what her name is. I know nothing about her, but I'm going to see her again one day. And we're going to be able to, I'm going to give her a hug. I'm going to catch up on all these years. Because this is what she is. She is a part of the church. There's a time when Christ, the end of this, where all our suffering, all our pain, all these things that just feel so brutal are described as being wiped away, like a tear being wiped away. See, that's what Christ will do. He will come again. And we will have at least an idea of what all this stuff is about, what all this stuff we're working through is. Do we feel this warmth at grace, the, the warmth I experience? We need to ask ourselves that. I've heard some people tell me that grace is actually um, a cold place where it's hard to get to know people, where they go on the grass and it's pretty awkward. You don't know who to talk to and no one addresses me or, or approaches me. If that's the case, guess what? There's good news. We can get better at this today. We can improve today. We can be what the church is meant to be today. And what that means is being aware, being aware of our cultural exports, being aware of your mooncake moments, what I experience of my culture being rejected. Are there moments that you are rejecting other people's culture simply because of your expectation of how the church is meant to be and the culture of the church? Take ownership. Do you realize what John is describing at the very end is you? You are a part of this. You are a part of the church at the very end. And what the context means, you're not a spectator. You are a part of this. Every single one of you play a critical role 
in being the church. So take ownership. This is not simply a place where you just consume, consume, consume. You are a part of this. Take action. You can do that right after this service. Go on the grass. Look for someone who doesn't look like you. Look for someone that's new, that you don't know their name. They may have been here for who knows how long, but you get to know them. You get to do life with them because that's what the church is meant to be. Diverse, united, and that one day we will stand together. We will get to the end and we will say together, salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we fail you in many ways. Lord, often we don't look like what we're meant to look like. Nah, God, that's why we come to you, for forgiveness, for grace. Help us, Lord, to be more like what the church is meant to be. Help us, Lord. We need your grace. We need your forgiveness. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Um, real quickly, I, I'm going to try to answer some questions um, as best as I can. I want to answer two questions. The rest, I will respond. First question, how do I foster inclusion as a visible minority in the church? The first thing you can do is we want to hear from you. If you are part of a small group, talk to your leader. And, and, and we want to hear your voice of how you may have felt your difference and how also you can contribute, how, you, how we can celebrate how you practice your faith. It's going to be different. The music we do, the way we do community, we want to hear from you. Second question, and we'll wrap up from here. What does it look like to live as people united in Christ practically? How does this change our lives? And how old am I? I'm 31 now. I'm a little older. I'm a dad now. Oh, thanks for that question. Um, but the first question, what does it look like practically? I think what it means is to be doing life with one another in, in our diversity and actually celebrating one another's differences. Like I said, grace is just a touch of that, but we can be so much better. We can be doing life so much better. And, and it's hard. I get it. Like, I'm, I have a kid, and I, I, I want to stick to other people with kids because we have this experience that we know. But even on a generational level, there, there can be aspects of connection being made, and I need to do a better job of engaging those who don't have families, who don't have children, at least right now, um, and, and actually practicing this. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. describes how, um, during the Civil Rights Movement, 11 a.m. was when America, I know this is very American, but I think it applies, where America is most divided. 11 a.m., because you have black churches and then you have white churches. I still think we see that to some degree where we have Chinese churches, Korean churches, and then other churches, Caribbean churches. I'm not saying that's necessarily bad, but I'm saying as a second gen, as this, if you come from these churches, you're breaking out of that, but also needing to be aware of your cultural exports and wanting to influence our church and our culture. And that's the end of it. Thank you so much. Um, I will have Stephen come up.